0: Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here, Aisha Tyler. Trott Corquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth
1: Meyers. Frankie
2: Cosmos. Flying Lewis. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast.
1: Ow! What's
0: up? What is up? It's your host, Elliot Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. On today's show... An incredible pairing celebrating the release of their film The Nest, actor Jude Law, director Sean Durkin, and composer Richard Reed Perry, who many of our listeners will know as the founding bassist slash multi instrumentalist of Arcade Fire. To help me intro this show from across town in our respective hashtag stay home studios, the man, the myth, the legend, Talkhouse Film Editor-in-Chief.
2: Nick Dawson. I believe it's me. And I do have a question for you, Elia. Hit me. If it's three people, is it still a pairing or is it a thraring? I think it's a thraring.
0: Yeah, I think it might that, be. That's an ancient Gaelic term.
2: Yeah, there's pictures of that. Not suitable for children. But thrarings <laughs> are fun. And this one is is really excellent.
0: Well, Nick, it was so fun to catch up with Richard Reed Perry again My old band, Scotland Yard Gospel Choir, had done some dates with Arcade Fire back in the day, and it was so nice to see his face again. What a wonderful guy and fantastic musician. And also, this was the first time that Sean Durkin and Jude Law have joined us on the show. Now, Nick, I understand that you're quite a fan of Sean's work.
2: I am. I think he's a brilliant filmmaker, and and this film, The Nest, is fantastic, I spoke to him years back when Martha Marcy May Marlene came out, which was like his breakthrough mm-hmm. debut feature, which uh, he won the Dramatic Directing Award uh, at Sundance for. He's part of the uh, the Borderline Films gang. You know, Antonio Campos and, and Josh Mond are part of that. We've done stuff both those guys at Talkhouse over the years mm-hmm. you know so he's produced a bunch of great films this is only his second feature which is kind of difficult to believe because he's sort of been around forever but the nest which has dude law and carrie coon as the leads in it's this really interesting it's almost sort of difficult to define exactly what genre it's in it's definitely a drama of some sorts but there's notes of sort of psychological thriller and and almost like horror in there but in the most subtle ways it's tonally just as as they discuss in this conversation, very, very delicate. It's visually beautiful, but also understated in many ways. The performances are excellent. Richard's score is fantastic. There's much to recommend in there. And just a couple of days before we recorded this intro, both Jude Law and Carrie Coon were nominated uh, the Gotham Awards, which is sort of a, a precursor of a bellwether, if you like, of the Oscars. So it seems like there's some uh, awards heat around this film as well, which is very well-deserved. Well... Deserved. well-
0: Let's talk about Jude Law. As you said, he turns in a brilliantly subtle performance here. Who knows? Is this an Oscar coming, Nick? Is that what you're telling me?
2: Dude, I, I have no idea. It's way too early to tell. And, and Oscar voters are, are, you know, completely bananas at some, at some certain points. <laughs> so there's no way of telling. But, but what I can say is it's a really excellent performance and a, a really important component part of a brilliantly calibrated film.
0: Jude Law, of course, has been one of the brilliant actors of the last two decades. He kicked things off in a big way with his role in The Talented Mr. Ripley and next won acclaim for Steven Spielberg's Artificial Intelligence back in 2001.
2: Yeah. I mean, from AI to Road to Perdition to Cold Mountain, he had this incredible start to his career, sort of breaking out pretty much immediately from just being a British actor to being somebody who was working internationally.
0: Yeah, and most recently, he is, of course, the young Albus Dumbledore in Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, and Jan rogg in Captain Marvel. Over the years, he's worked with some of the best directors around. I'm thinking Mike Nichols, Steven Soderbergh, Scorsese, Wes Anderson, Kenneth Branagh, Tarek Gilliam, and so many more.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, it's incredible. I, I love the fact that he really sort of balances the bigger movies, the Guy Ritchie movies uh, and the popcorn stuff with films by the, the best directors around. It's, it's really kind of uh, what you want to do if you're an actor with the clout that he has.
0: Mm. He's also been doing some television. I'm thinking Paolo Sorrentino's The Young Pope a few years back and just this year, The New Pope. The
2: New Pope, The Young Pope. He is all of the popes and very <laughs> entertaining being them.
0: Nick, I want to talk about Richard for a minute. When I first met him, he was switching between upright bass and uh, occasional celeste keyboards, accordion, and sometimes drumsticks on fellow band members' helmets. This was (laughs) back in the funeral days of Arcade Fire. He's gone on to a wonderful career, both with that band and outside of it. He's collaborated with some incredible people, worked with the National Kronos Quartet, Bell Orchestra, and
2: so many more. Including Islands and Unicorns, two particular favorite bands of mine. Got to give them props. There you go, man. He's been getting
0: around. It's so awesome to see. Now, for all the amazing projects he's worked on, Nick, this is his debut film score. And boy, he knocks it out of the park. Subtly. Subtle home run.
2: Yeah. And you hear in the conversation, Sean, is, just as a speaker, is a very sort of like gentle understated person and, and Richard has a similar quality and I think so much of this film is really about people working together in a very intuitive way in a deeply collaborative way and, and Richard's music inspired by uh, the, the work that he did on his album Music for Heart and Breath really is, is kind of a very subtle underpinning to the film and mm. is not intrusive in any way and I, I think it's, it's really perfect for The Nest. Yeah, I, I love their conversation around that. And and they get into
0: so much here, Nick, that, that both applies directly to the nest, but also just to the creative process. I was very taken with the way that all three of them discuss planning very intricately for their roles, but then being willing to throw out all their notes to be present in the creativity of the moment.
2: Yeah, there's this great term that they use, submitting to the will of the moment. And I think that yes. there is this like generosity and nimbleness in the way that all three of them approach their work and, and coming together for this project. I, I think it's worked really, really well. And it's you know fascinating to hear just their, their conversation and the, the mutual respect that they have for one another and the inquisitiveness about each other's creative process. It really is a, a dissection, if you like, of their different contributions to the film, but also their different processes and the way that they are similar and different
0: it is and to that end i love the reveal that it really takes them interacting with the elements that each of the others bring to the film for them to find their own exact place in it we also get to
2: hear about one of the best horse shots in cinema history i actually think there's a a number of amazing horse shots in that film i don't actually know which one he's referring to that's how good it is
0: (laughs) Jude and Sean talk about the process of creating a backstory for his character.
2: Yeah, there's such a richness to Rory, the character that Jude plays. It really, really pays off in the film. And we hear about how Simply Red's holding
0: back the years evoked a very specific memory of the 80s for Sean.
2: Underrated song and happy it's getting some props in the movie. Should we roll the tape, man? Let's roll it. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. So <laughs> did we just
1: start? Yeah, well, I guess we do our names at the top. Okay, so, uh, hi, this is Sean Durkin. Hello, this is Richard Reed Perry.
3: And this is
4: Jude Law. And we're having a conversation together. <laughs> we are via Zoom. <laughs> so I have a question, actually, because I don't know—I never understood how you two met and started this relationship, this working relationship, this friendship together. How did how did that come about?
3: Well, we actually, we had one step removed mutual
1: friends. Yeah. In New York. Yeah. And then I was making Southcliffe in England and Lucy Bright, our music supervisor, works with Richard and And I don't know how it came about. And I can't remember like the timing of it all, but, but basically Lucy had wanted to introduce us mm-hmm. and then we met very briefly at some point, But but I was listening to Richard's Heart and Breath album while writing the Nest, and so that album was always like in the script in a way. So his music was a part of the process for me, and 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 then again through Lucy, we probably took steps towards having the conversation. But yeah, at some point, point while I was
3: on tour, (laughs) I was on Arcade Fire tour, and you had reached out, and you were like, "Oh, you guys are going to be in New York." Do you want to come have a drink? I would love to talk to you about this, and you, I think you just said you've been listening to that record, and yeah, you were working on something, and so we we went out with you and your partners at the time.
1: Yeah, so that was like 2014. Yeah, yeah. So so it kind of started around then, and then mm-hmm. I think I always had it in my mind as I was writing, and then once we got closer, uh, I reached out again. Yeah, to start have the you conversation done
4: that before Sean. When you write, do you find yourself drawn to a particular soundscape that becomes the uh sort of the score for for the writing process anyway very
1: much yeah so i'll i'll build a soundtrack while i'm writing that you know in the case of the nest it was richard's music and then it was 80 songs things that i felt would play things that were you know very specific to me that that were nostalgic to me um Mm -hmm. Things that just like took me back to a place, like, you know, Simply Red plays in the scene with you and Carrie in the restaurant. And that mm-hmm. song, uh, Holding Back the Years, is a song that whenever it plays, I remember basically like being half asleep in the back of my parents' car, mm-hmm. you know, on a Saturday night or something. And and so there's a lot of songs like that from that time that I really wanted to have in there. There's an Al Jarreau song too in the movie that's in for like five seconds. And it's and it, and it was like those corners of 80s music that I really wanted to have tied in with, you know, the songs that are sort of play over the dance scenes in the movie. And so I try to create that balance of, uh, I guess, nostalgia that takes me somewhere when I'm writing. It takes me to an emotional place that I remember, as well as music I just want to hear. And then also music that just feels like the right vibe. And there may or may not be a reason for it. But I just Kind of want it there.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: One of those songs, actually, that I just wanted in there and, and didn't really have the same kind of reason for it, and kind of became the basis for, you know, our reference point is the um, the Mingus um, Ellington song off of Money Jungle. That's right. a that
3: movie. That was such a cool for me. That was like the. Not like I had any like existential doubts about jumping into the process or anything, but when you guys sent me the first rough cut, and that was the only piece of music besides the the '80s songs that was in there, and you blessedly hadn't put any temp music in anywhere to confuse me otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> um, that piece, that Ellington, Mingus, Roach piece, that I'd been like quite obsessed with it for like four or five years preceding it. And was like, oh my God, do I get to make music that relates to this piece of music somehow? That like just felt like a uh, the, the sign from heaven, <laughs> kind of for me.
4: But that's interesting like, that there was no other temp. I'm glad. I, I can imagine for you that must be such a requirement in a way because you're you're then watching and feeling and filling rather than in any way being affected by any mm. other sound that it's then... Because something that I love about what you've done on this film is create such an in-tune sort of emotional soundscape and then these moments of detail, are just moments that that sort of a little bit like the drama that just occasionally come to a crescendo or just have a, a moment of detail and complexity and then and then they ease back into a sort of overall mood.
3: Right. And, and a quietude some of the time, right? Uh-huh. I mean... Th- It's very spare in a lot of ways, Um, which I think on on first watch, I was actually like, I deeply relished watching a movie that was so spacious. It was also a lot longer at that point when I watched the first cut, Um, but I so deeply enjoyed watching this almost silent movie, you know, except for these, you know, what they call in film music, like these diagenic, pieces where you can the music's like coming from the car stereo or it's coming from the club sound system and then the bar scene or whatever but I loved having these vast silent expanses like after I watched the first cut like the one of the bits that was really burned on my brain was you Jude like walking home at dawn through the field and it's so dimly lit and so emotionally kind of murky and and complicated but it was just silent and I was just like This is amazing. (laughs) Like, you never, you know, without watching like old experimental Japanese films from the 60s or something, you don't get to see vast expanses of slow moving filmed action and a character just alone with themselves and alone with the story and alone with the sort of consequences of their actions. And I was, I just loved actually watching it in silence, you know, and just kind of hearing your footsteps. And part of me was like, oh God, don't make me fill up this gorgeous, like (laughs) emotionally resonant, huge cavernous silences with music. Like, don't make me do it. But then, but then also like blessedly every time I would kind of feel like, uh, I I don't want to say anxiety based level but almost like okay I got to do my job as a as a film composer now and like they're they're driving up to the house in the car so we got to have driving music and Sean was really good at at like no no like we don't need music there it doesn't have to be like action equals music <laughs> and for and for me that was also like a weight off it was like oh 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 cool okay <laughs> like we actually just get to focus on underscoring things emotionally and it doesn't have to feel actually, like it makes
4: absolute sense to me now because there is such a um, sense of allowance throughout the piece that lets you and I've only really come to this recently because obviously I was involved in, in making it so it's hard sometimes it takes a couple of viewings for me to to distance myself and sort of start to watch it uh, emotionally. But there are allowances to just let things happen. You don't feel direct, you know, that you're being signposted. Mm. Um, And it's why sometimes I think that the intensity of certain scenes, the intensity of certain uh, uh, relationships or climaxes of relationships take you by surprise. And other Mm. times you are just left and allowed to observe and feel Mm. and watch. Mm. And it's one of the... uh, Overall sort of finesses of this of the film that I love so much that it it allows you to feel, yeah, without telling you how,
3: and again i I was really thankful, like Sean to your like our process together started with really me just having watched the film once and then making a whole pile of musical ideas, really rough sketches, not watching the film while I was doing so just kind of having having soaked up the feeling of the thing and then just let some ideas come and not even really be consciously thinking about it too much, but really just follow some some kind of first thought, best thought, kind of musical impulses and just throwing a whole pile of ideas at Sean and then just letting Sean see if any of those resonated in any way and he would kind of place them in different places and then send me a draft back of, oh, this idea feels like it has something, like keep following that and this one did stick to this scene or this moment and... So I kind of got a vague roadmap, at least of your thinking process um, and your (laughs) way of connecting to it emotionally, which is- I
1: love like you're you're just talking about throwing out sketches. I mean, we'd get this like delivery and Matt and I would listen to it. It's like, this this doesn't feel like sketches. It's like mind blowing music. (laughs) There's (laughs) so much of it that is so good. And one of the things that was a big part of the process was like, how to choose? Like, how do we decide what fits best here? because it all fit? because I think I think it's not dissimilar to working on the the actor side, you know, and in, in our conversations, mm. Jude, it's like there's a there's an understanding from day one of being on the same page mm. and knowing knowing instinctually what it needs to be. So in a sense, like being in tune from the very beginning ends up creating so much good material then becomes about how to focus it. And, mm. um, you know, for me, Matt Hannum, our editor, was just so good at, uh, he, he had a lot more language around music than than I do. Um, I don't really, I know what I like, I know what I feel, I know how I want, like I always want music to, a music cue to be born out of the movie, sort of born out of the silence that you are talking about. Mm, mm. I want it to almost sneak up on you and and not necessarily always notice when it started and when it didn't. Mm. And so I'm always feeling that out, but I don't always have the language on how to articulate that. And Matt was really helpful in sort of Mm -hmm. breaking down the music for me into language and saying, okay— these are some themes like let's focus on these you know then we fed that back to you in terms of identifying those themes and which ones we thought were sort of growing out of the silence i think in the best way Mm-mm-mm. yeah there is there is something that you and matt would both
3: say repeatedly that i'm curious about uh in, during that our process to that, that i'm curious whether it it applied in the same way for you jude which is they would re- kind of report back to me after I would send the music and they'd been, they'd been working a- away in the editing room and they would say like, yeah, I think we're really finding the film now. I think we're really finding the film now, yeah. which uh, was really a relief to me. Cause I really felt like I was just sort of trying to find, find some music as well. Right. Yeah. You're like, I don't know quite what my job is yet. I have to find my job and then find out how to do it. Was there a, a a similar feeling in in the acting process and in finding Absolutely. you know finding I think the, in the long run and
4: it's always in films certainly to me about generosity that you have to at some point I, I guess this also applies to the director but I don't know so much I'd I'd, I'd ask that of Sean but you certainly the generosity meaning that, that in the end you have to just give your performance over right you can't mm. you, you can try and steer it if you're say you know worried about where you think it might end up but you. On the day, you, you, there's a truth that you're trying to get to and you're trying to get there with the other actors, you're trying to get there with the director. And, and sometimes you you play around that truth, but in the end you have to walk away knowing that that great moment or that great scene may not even make it in. And that in the end, as you just referenced, Richard, the, the film speaks. And that's why I go back to whether... The, I don't know that it's the same for the director, but I imagine it is in a way that... it. You know, the director accumulates all this input, and we we offer this input up, and then at the end, when you sit and start to amass it all in a way, the voice of the piece sort of rears up like this, right. you know, like this phantom, right, uh, from mm. all the alchemy around it, and and the voice of the piece, the piece becomes, and that piece may not need that particular scene that that that, that I may hold on to or think that was it. That was the scene that got that character or that was that look. It may not need it or it may not need that piece that you wrote thinking, oh, I think I nailed that. This little piece sums up the whole... Do you know what I mean? Uh, Would you agree with that, Sean? And where do you think the director sits in that process?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to watch you both work through the process because I I was actually thinking in the build-up to doing this that I feel like the three of us have a very similar process Mm. in that it is about diving into something, kind of getting fully underwater in it, and then coming out with the essence of what it is. And I I feel like I I certainly work that way, and I kind of watched you both in your own ways do that. Mm. And I find, first, it's about a safe environment for me. Like, I need to be working with people who... You know, producers who are not gonna get caught up when I send them a draft that isn't absolutely perfect. They're not gonna panic, you know, Mm -hmm. that they're gonna know that this is a part of a process and they're gonna trust that I'm gonna get it there. And I wanna give the same thing to the people that I'm working with. And I think in that trust is where you can fully try things, like try a take, try a scene that, yeah, like I said, it might not work in the end, but you can't be afraid as an actor uh, or as a composer to go there because it's going to lead you somewhere. And I think bringing all these pieces and watching them, and I don't always know what it is, but I kind of feel that we're on the right track until we get there and then you see it. And, it's, and it is very much incremental for me about finding it along the way. Mm-hmm. And And also like on the day, you know, we're doing a scene and we'll do 10 takes and... You know, you can walk away on the day and say, "Oh, we'll take ten. That was it." But knowing full well, when you get into the edit, it's probably take one or three or right, right, and, The and one so, that didn't feel that good at the time. Yeah, exactly. And so, but what it what the overall feeling that I get walking away from doing a scene is that we got it on a gut level, mm. and and it's sort of that throughout the process. Like, yeah, it's never y- you. You can't be 100% sure, but you can feel overall like, okay, we're getting it, we're getting it. And and it's the same for me getting, you know, your first batch of music. It's like, I don't know what of this is going to be the actual score of the movie, but it is in there. 100% it's in there. Mm. That's so cool. (laughs) It's
3: so cool when that stuff works out, like that it's easy to feel like there is already some kind of collective unconscious thing happening through everyone just committing to finding whatever it is that they're... Trying to find and explore the thing they're trying to explore, and mm. know that at the end of that tunnel, the the thing exists and the thing is perfect and tells the story it needs to tell. But entering into it, not knowing how you're going to do it, and just knowing that you're going to try and do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, do you guys feel that about your processes? Both that you feel like you get sort of lost and have to try and find
4: you know, the light at, at the, the end of the tunnel, is kind of. That. I, don't, I know that it's not always that for me and that's not because of my choice that's because of how other filmmakers work but I think at its best at its most creative it's this sort of knowing unknowing journey and I, I love the idea that it's it's about a thing that's not necessarily tangible but it's certainly not about okay if I put all these pieces in the right order I'll have made and told this story like you know that's just the beginnings of it that that yeah. Th- that's where it starts, isn't it? And um I think l- giving it the 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 room and the space for it to find itself is certainly I feel when I I do work that I'm not planning to do and that to me is really exciting. But equally, you know, I do other jobs sometimes where I tip up and I I do what's expected and and it's perfectly fulfilling, but there are no surprises and there are no uh insights when i see it where i think oh that's what it was about i mean when i right. saw this there were so many levels on which i just didn't r- realize at the time because i was trying to deal with what was in front of me and, and 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 find my own truth revelations in 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 where it went and what it really meant and that's what i meant when i said um it took me a while to watch it and and fully see it um and that's not always the case but it's certainly for me the most uh rewarding Hmm.
3: how much in in you guys's process how much is it an instructive process and how much is it a a asking quite like both of you asking questions versus sean saying jude i need you to be this or i need you to embody this or i need you to represent this or whatever whatever it is
4: well it started again it's so particular to each relationship and therefore each job because for me that process started when i first read it and we first sat down together and just started work together right sean it was like yeah. the, the question asking and if you like the description of this other that we, we're all talking about started there and then and it was a case of so is is it this color or is it this color oh i think it's probably more this color than that color so you know <laughs> And and there were specifics. There were sometimes, no, he wouldn't, I don't think, do that, or he wouldn't necessarily speak like that. But um, on the whole, it was talking around something and someone, I felt, with great generosity from Sean's part, both as writer and director, because... Again, I, I've certainly worked with people, and it's not wrong. But you work with people who are very specific and do it like this, or, or really, I know, I, I, you know, they'll let you play for a while, and then they'll say, "Actually, I really want you to just stand there and look over there and say like this." And you go, right. oh, "Oh, fine, okay, I can do that." But right. uh, Sean wasn't that in any way, shape, or form. And um, by the time we got to set, I felt, and I've only really thought about this, and right now, I felt like I absolutely owned this character, but you know, it's still very much of Sean's writing and Sean, in Sean's hands as a director, because that's the medium. But I felt so safe and brave in, in knowing who this person was. Mm. Um, was that all a ploy, Sean? <laughs> 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 no, I, I really think that um,
1: I I tried to make the script cl- clear, I guess. A- and, mm. and not clear in an obvious way, but... I try to use the script to say, this is this is what it is, this is who the characters are. And then I like to hand it off. I really like to, getting great actors, I just don't, the, the reason I want to work with Jude is because of what Jude does. So I want Jude to take what I've written and do what he does with it. And then and, and mm. then we build on that and we talk about it. But, but for me, it's very much about just that trust, that sort of day one trust. I mean, yeah, the first time we ever... Sat down together, we were immediately asking the same questions, had mm-hmm. the the exact same, like, okay, well, we know we don't want it to go here. And just get a feeling. And you, mm. I feel like, kind of ride that wave. And I'm both very open and a complete control freak. So it's a it's a funny, <laughs> it's yeah. a funny combination. But I really believe in that openness. Mm-mm-mm. I think I start with like the language, right? Like I think one of the first things I say is like. If you don't feel comfortable saying something, don't say it. Or, or if there's something you don't want to do, let's talk about it. And and yeah, I just don't believe in that sort of forcing something to work. It just never, in my experience, it doesn't end up working. With, you know, with with the, everything has a rare exception, but... Mm.
4: Yeah. It was a particular, I'm just thinking now, it, it was just such a unique experience, this one, because... Going back on what we've all just been uh, trying to describe the tone of the piece was very individual was very particular and very fine it was there was a sort of mm-hmm. subtlety and fragility to it it's what makes it such a an affecting film and I think it's a film that really gets into your system and because it it's full of it's full of such um familiar and touching kind of moments without ever being too uh, heavy handed in its storytelling and it's so interesting to me that that we're all talking about this um this mood and that conjuring that is really the heart of of what makes film such an extraordinary medium isn't it conjuring Mm. that getting that getting that balance just right and it was interesting and the reason I thought of it was because actually for all the conversations you and I had Sean we didn't talk about music it wasn't like because I often I have in the past worked on things where I've said oh should I listen to something should I not you know what I mean Yeah. and and yet in a way that conversation was being had because we were talking about the the sort of the mood of, of Rory and, and I imagine that that was a conversation you then went on to have with Richard of a similar kind so there's a kind of commonality but not necessarily ever uh, uh, we, we never had the same conversation or well, Richard and I certainly didn't no. Yeah, it's, it's really it's really interesting to talk
1: about music, especially with with acting like I you know every actor has a different process and and I really like to tune into what each person needs and wants and um, yeah. but I do notice sometimes like some people really listen to music to prepare and and I find uh, it's interesting that we didn't talk about it. I never thought about it but I guess the reason I never bring it up is I feel like music is so personal mm-hmm. and I feel like. We're trying to capture a place and a time and I can give you the script, but then you live through it and you have your own, you know, personal things to draw on that yeah. only you know the music that gets you there the same way that, you know, Simply Red gets me to the back of my dad's car.
0: You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Right. This show is brought to you by Patreon, who ask creators, are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? social media and streaming platforms help people find your work but getting you paid is another story with patreon you can stop rolling the dice of ad revenue and per stream payouts and grow your creative career through the direct support of the people who care the most your fans since patreon is built for creators not advertisers you'll skip the middleman and develop a sustainable income source by offering a recurring membership to your fans in turn They'll get access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken. So if you're a podcaster, video maker, musician, writer, illustrator, a creative person of any kind, sign up on patreon.com now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com. And change the way your creativity is valued by building the steady income stream you deserve.
4: how in the end did um you know often with a score you you would look and you go oh yeah that's that scene that's like well, are there moments where it bleeds from one scene to the other and bridges or how in the end did it get um put in Do, does does that make sense yeah sure like are there are there very are there some scenes where it's very clear oh this is this is piece number 1 and then and then other sections where it just it drifts over say three or four sequences
1: there there are some things we would just lock into in the edit and say like okay this feels like the theme and then there was a secondary theme that really worked at a certain place so then there were places that just felt absolutely like okay that it's like getting your foot in the door right it's like okay now we're grounded like okay and then and then it became quite practical and then we would feel out places where it felt like we were you know too long without music so then we'd try and find the right thing and and then it was just kind of a Back and forth, and and we right. did some, even did some of that up up until the end in person, didn't we? There was some yeah,
3: very much so yeah. things we were and, like
1: on the fence about. And oftentimes, I would
3: then based on if I just threw a pile of ideas, I'd go and I was I was really I was really it was quite a collaborative musical process for me. I was working with um, my dear friends Parker Spurs, the pianist, and uh, Stuart Bogey played clarinet and flute, and then Ayumi Paul, the violinist, and all of my musical relationships with them are quite collaborative. So I could really just plant an idea, plant a theme, go, right, let's do something kind of like this. Let's try it in this way. But almost none of the whole score was like written out on paper. Everyone do this now at this time. It really got to be an open, let's make music together with wow. you know How people wonderful. I like to make music with. And we would just plant these ideas and try them and record them. So I would just set up with them and we would just be recording ideas in a very free form kind of loosely guided manner and we'd end up with these huge piles of ideas as mentioned and I would just throw them all to Sean and Matt. And then they would really place them in a way that kind of took took a lot of the burden of being a composer off of my shoulders in a certain way because you I just really let you guys decide. Where is music needed and where is music not needed, and and often I would be like, oh, we really need music here, and you guys would be totally sure, like, no, we we really don't, and so it was quite that was quite a load off in a way, and I could just get a little more, we could get a little more microscopic with the music, but when you guys would decide, oh, this piece goes here, oh, now Carrie's realizing that. Jude has been lying this whole time and has a manufactured identity and that's the th- this is the theme that is edging in now. Okay, and that's also our title credits. And I'd go, okay, so we've got... So the title credits are the lying music. If, like, if that's going to be the lying music later or the realization that there's wow. this horrible lie at the center of their lives and we're putting that in the credits, then I've got to sneak something else into the credits thematically so that it's not just oh that's the that's the lying music right. you know and it's obviously not as black and white as that as i'm explaining it but but so when, when you guys decided that music worked for the title credits then i was like okay i gotta sneak in the jude's just doing his thing theme also which is the ends up being the end credit music and so there's just like a little clarinet refrain tacked on because we use that same recording twice but we just treated it different ways. So it's the same piece of actual recorded music in the title credits as it is in that restaurant scene. But we just kind of mixed it slightly differently and we edited it slightly differently and we added this little clarinet playing the, the Jude theme for <laughs> lack of a, a more graceful term. Um, but that was really exciting for me too to have this kind of, this framework of you guys saying this music needs to be here and I'd go okay great I can just adapt it to suit what I think needs to be included in that or referenced just in a subtle way you know and none of those things are most of those things are probably not noticed by the casual observer on on first watch but they're sort of important inner details for mm. for me as a as a composer
1: Jude on on your end you know like, like we were talking about the music and, and, and it's it's really interesting that Richard took some of that internal mm. undertones of Rory and, and that that sort of internal life and that inspired the sound that he found. In your process of, of of finding the character, how do you navigate those things? Do do you go there or do you focus on just specifics and build on that?
4: Um it's a process that I've changed quite a lot over the years, and it still has to be adaptable to the part. But but with Rory, I really wanted to. Ha- I had, felt I had to have a clear sense of his childhood and who he was. So I went right back and and wrote a whole sort of backstory, and you you contributed, yeah. I remember, to that uh, yeah. hugely and gave me a real sense of childhood and and then I tried to sort of root that emotionally in, in things that were familiar to me, aspiration perhaps of, you know, another life that you you weren't living as a child or the better life or the, the kids that had stuff that you didn't have or... And I sort of layered it up from there in a way. So I felt that I really knew who he was and, and, and how he felt so that you can say the word mother and all that that means to him can... You know, echo in his eyes without him having to to say anything, or I then don't have to demonstrate anything. Hopefully, um, I suppose what I'm describing is, is is you put in those layers so that um, the inner turmoil that Richard described, or that Richard picked up on, or indeed that the piece unpeels um, is all there. And and yeah. um, and in a way, all that work leads me up to the day of, which is when we film today's of the day this happens to him and all the rest can sort of rest under the skin and inside and you can be honest to that moment and and understand what it was that got you to this moment and it's a really enjoyable process I didn't I didn't quite used to go into it as thoroughly when I when I really started out. But I love it because it, it gives you a great sense of security that you you know this person. It gives you a great sense of affection for the person because, mm. you know, I think if you know anyone from childhood through to adulthood, you tend to have an affection or an understanding for the way that they behave and who they are because you know their journey. And it also, is, I think, as an actor, gives you an opportunity to play the moment more so you're not playing the past Yeah, you know, in in order to tell a story in the moment and, um, or in the now. That's the best part for me is like Mm. what you're
1: describing, watching, because that, you know, you're just, you're living the moment on screen and reacting. And and it's, you know, I guess you you have done all this work and you're coming there and it's, it's why the performances are so good. You're in it and you're there and it's, it's interesting talking about all this because I think when I'm making a film and and even now writing new things, it's like, there's no sort of answer or concrete end. It's like a constant swirl of ideas and possibilities and weighing. But when you're shooting a scene, you're just there and you're completely in the moment and Mm -hmm. you give over to it. And it's so alive. Mm -hmm. And that is like, uh, I love I love every part of the process, but that for me is I mm. guess sort of why I do it. That's the the ultimate mm-hmm. moment. It's just yeah, isn't that Interesting. We talked it. a
4: lot about the the unknowable and capturing a tone and a, a mood. But you're so right that when you're filming it, you you can't hedge bet. You ha- you have to know, don't you? It has to be right in yeah. that moment because uh, you're committing that. It, it can you can vary it take to take or shot to shot but um you have to be true to that moment
1: yeah and in some ways like you want to create that throughout the entire filming process when you're making a movie it's like you just have that feeling of like it's working you know and you right. have it over 35 days but it's just that holding that general feeling throughout the whole shoot of like yes mm-hmm. we are in right. that zone that you're describing where it is all clicking and working
3: and do you feel like like sh- from a writing point of view, then becoming the directing point of view at some point, I imagine you just have to switch headspaces at
1: a certain point. You can't be the writer anymore, or something. Well, they're they're pretty linked for me. Um, I mean, yeah, <laughs> clearly. Like no, no, but some but some yeah. people do. I mean, some people really do
3: separate them. But at a certain point, like you sort of have to abandon what you've written to yeah. what is going down in front of you, right? You have to direct what is what you guys are talking about. Like there's a moment and you're in that, like you're really, you have to sort of submit to the will of the moment, mm. be it in, in character as the actor. Yeah. It's like, oh, actually here is the emotion that's coming across in this scene. This isn't necessarily identical to how you had written it or how you'd imagined it, or, but it's just like Jude's, in this case, taking it and running with it and becoming whatever the emotion of the scene is. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you're sort of at the mercy of it and at at that point, right? Once it takes on its own.
1: So it's a really interesting thing. Like when I'm writing, I direct the movie in my head. So I'll write a scene, I'll rewrite and I'm so meticulous about the way it looks. When I step into a location, I cannot remember what I imagined. So once I choose a location, I forget the house that I imagined before, and and right. and it was very clear. All the details were right. very clear, but they get erased from my memory, and now the house is all that happens. Right. And the same. And 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 every scene is is shot in my head, but then again, on the day when we get there, we have a backup. But I let the action dictate. I let the space dictate. So it's a constant process for me of. Being completely prepared, visualizing it, and then letting it go. And right. in terms of the, like, sometimes I'll look at the words to, to just make sure, you know, as a sort of guide through the day, but I really never look at my notes or the script during the day of shooting.
4: Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. it's. And by the way, I have exactly the same experience. Like, I'll, I'll sit at home, I'll learn my lines, I'll think, oh yeah, this will, I'll walk on this line, and this will be a great moment. I'll stop and I'll turn and I'll confront them, and then maybe. I'll just, lo- you know, and you get there and that just goes <laughs> out of the window. And Sean says, right. okay, we're going to sit right. here. And then maybe, and you're like, yeah, great, okay. And suddenly it is what it is. <laughs> right,
1: right. I take great comfort in giving yourself over to process and giving yourself over to the moment and... Right, the um, elements. Yeah, the elements. I mean, one of, one of the funny things about this film is that I imagined it to be... I mean, we were shooting in England between September and November, and I expected rain and I expected, you know, a bit of fog maybe, uh, you know, just just something. And we had sun every single day. <laughs> it rained once and it started raining at like 5.02, two minutes after we wrapped for that day. <laughs> right. And there were two shoot days that we had to push because it was so sunny we were like, "Oh, people are just going to think we shot in America and never came to England." <laughs> so, you know, I, it, it's it didn't have the quality that I expected it to have, but it takes on its own quality. And mm-hmm. you know, there's moments like the like the horse riding scene where we it was so sunny that day that we and it was like 80 degrees and we had to get that scene shot before. 10am we decided cuz it was just going to be too flat they had, to, they had to send the horse back <laughs> yeah yeah it was just it was just going to be too flat and sunny and so we we ended up shooting it we did it in like an hour which otherwise would have taken all day but it forced mm. us to do it without question you right. know the light was amazing it was low you could feel the mist you know so there was just things that it just forced us to do and and right. It ended up being beautiful, and and so it's filled with those sorts of
3: moments. A good cinema friend of mine said, whoa, that's like one of the great horse shots of cinema history. Oh, that's great. (laughs) So there you go, (laughs) right? Nobody else knows that it was supposed to be rainy that day. Yeah.
4: Yeah. But those are those moments, and that's also why making films on this scale are the most, um, in my mind, rewarding, because you don't, your options for changing or shifting a schedule or reshooting or something, you know, are absolutely minimized. And that means you have to, you you go with what you have and what you have is also in the end what needed to be, you know? Yeah. Right,
3: right. Sometimes you don't need more time, you just need a deadline.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We said we'd do it and I'm so glad we did. Yeah, likewise.
3: Yeah, such a pleasure.
4: What a lovely process it's been. Indeed, yeah. Yeah
3: and thanks again Sean
1: yeah <laughs> thank you thanks, guys thanks, thanks for inviting inviting me and in, inviting us in yeah. it's yeah. been an incredible collaboration with both of you and I look forward to doing it again likewise yeah, yeah. great yeah I'm already sketching
3: <laughs> what, for, for whatever the movie
0: is <laughs> great <laughs> yeah. Sean Durkin, Jude Law, Richard Reed Perry, thank you so much for joining us here on the Talkhouse podcast. Listeners, if you enjoyed today's show, make sure to rate and subscribe. We have some incredible episodes coming up, including Phoebe Bridgers with Betty LeVette and A Twofer with Jeff Tweedy. One conversation with comedian Nick Offerman, the other with Nora Jones. Also, I'm going to give you guys a hint for what's happening at the top of next year. Bootsy Collins and the Beastie Boys Mixmaster Mike you do not want to miss that one
2: and while we're in the world of Sean Durkin and, and Borderline Films go check out some quality classic Talk House content with Josh Mond who was on the Talk House podcast talking to JC Chandor back in 2015 and Josh and Sean's excellent collaborator Antonio Campos did a three great things just a couple months ago go check out that as well That is at
0: TalkHouse.com, as well as our socials, which is at TalkHouse across the board. Definitely head over there to check out a wonderful screenshot of all of us recording this session. Everyone you heard today recorded themselves. Big thanks to our producer, Mark Yoshizumi, and to The Range, who composed and performed the TalkHouse podcast theme song. Till next week, I'm Elia Einhorn. I'm Nick Dawson. Peace. And secrets that pervade the house quietly and threaten to destroy everything. <laughs> nice.